Anzac Day is a time to remember the sacrifices made by our brave servicemen and women. This is an Ed for Breakfast special Anzac Day broadcast in their shoes. Good morning, I'm Ed Cowleshaw and welcome to Anzac in their shoes. This Anzac Day here at Triple M Gippsland, uh, we are paying homage to those that have served this country and maybe still serving as well. And Anzac Day goes beyond the anniversary of uh, the landing of Gippoli back in 1915. It is a day that we remember all Australians who served and died in wars, conflicts and peacekeeping operations. Today, residents of our region will get out and about to uh, to various services uh, that will be happening around our region and remembering what these men and women have done for us and this country. We'll hear from Vietnam veterans. We will hear from those that have served in peacekeeping missions in Timor, those that signed up just after the Iraqi war and those that served in peacetime but decided to give their all for this country. So join me as we catch up with various members of RSLs around our beautiful community and hear about why they chose to give their all when it mattered most. Ron Culliver is the president of the Taralgan RSL. I sat down with him and spoke about the day that he signed up for the 4th, 19th Prince of Wales Light Horse. Well, I suppose where I went to school in Melbourne, um, Christian Brothers College, we had a cadet unit and I spent about two or three years with the cadet unit and thought the uniform was great and I loved the idea and everything you saw around in those days was inspiring to do something or join the military and see the world. So that started me off and then I left uh, Melbourne, went to Gippsland for quite a few years and then uh, bumped into somebody recruiting for the 4th 19th Prince of Wales Light Horse on a Saturday morning and decided I'd go along and have a look. And there I stayed for just over 10 years in the sale depot at the end of my time up there. Uh, that's how I got into the uniform. Was there anything from your family as well before that uh, to maybe get you inclined to suit up? Yeah, my family tradition goes back to the, the Boer War where we had family in the in that war and then uh, the First and Second World War I had aunties, uncles, grandparents who served in that. Um, so we, yeah, it does go back a fair way. This is a, My sons, two of them, are served for quite a while in military, uh, army and navy. So, yeah, the tradition goes on for about five generations in this family. How poignant is that for, for you and your family members when it comes to Anzac Day? And what does it mean, I mean, to you and your sons and, I guess, those before you? Uh, look, I think probably Anzac Day for me is um, the biggest day of the year. Uh, we have quite a few with the dawn service and another four or five services we do during the day, but uh, I have one of my sons who uh, was with the UN Peacekeeping Forces, um, so he gets to lay a wreath on the day, um, and that... You know, he's very proud to see your son there. With uh, the RSL at the moment, uh, it's always going through a change and things like that. I look at the facility here at Taralgon, a lot of work's gone into it, uh, but there's still a lot more to go, isn't there? Oh, yes. We we have a five-year strategic plan, but part of it is we're looking for the young veterans. We know there's over 100 in this area, um, and we want you to come in. You don't have to join us. Come in, use our facilities. We've got advocates, we've got welfare officers. We want to turn the house that we have currently in K Street into a veteran-type centre where they, they just have a lounge, a kitchen, whatever. They can just come in at any time they like, sit down, talk. Don't have to talk. They don't have to come through the club. But come and use the facilities. We know these people are out there and, and they need help. We can help them 
to a certain degree, but we can put them in touch with the people who can really get and help them, you know, and it makes such a difference to see the look on them and the families. Most of them have got families who desperately need help too. Ronnie, are you surprised uh, with the amount of veterans that we have in our, our backyard of Gippsland, uh, young veterans? Yes, I'm a bit surprised. We got the numbers out of the last census and it shows quite a few people in this area, one of the biggest areas in Victoria for veterans. So we knew they were there, but we could never get any real close figures. Now we've got idea of figures. Um, so we, it's like talking to you. We like to get the word out there that we want to get these chaps to come in and see us. We're here seven days a week. We can look after you. We were talking off air beforehand about when men were men back in the early oh, yes. early periods yeah. of World War One, World War Two, and the the absolute havoc and unbelievable things that they may have seen yeah. on a on a negative scale. I'm talking here, but they had no one to go to. They'd come off those ships, they'd come back home. Uh, Mum and Dad'd be glad to have them back, and then bang straight into work, and not understanding what they had been through. Yeah. What about for this generation that's going through that may have served in conflicts of the Gulf War or Afghanistan and, and things like that? I think it's out of sight, out of mind conflicts that we're talking about here. We've seen that. We've seen them and when they're talking to you, the change in them. And I don't mind if I sit there for an hour or two hours or three hours. If they want to talk, just let them say whatever and then we can start working out what we can do to help them, in which direction we can help them. The impact on families as well. I mean, these are young men uh, and women who have served uh, and I think it doesn't matter what conflict they've been in to not only help them but also their families. How do you guys do that? Yeah, look, it, it's hard. We, we, we see them and we talk to them and then you meet the families and you realise that they're not the, the veteran's not the only one affected, it's the family. And sometimes if we can help them just to see the difference on the face of those people the family, whether it's wives, children, mothers, fathers, it's worth it. If that's all we did all year, it'd be worth it. But look, yeah, there's so many out there that need help and just if they feel want, they want to come in and talk, do it. There's no obligation. You don't have to give us a name or anything. Just come in and use the facilities and let's try and help you. Ron Culliver, President of the Taralgon RSL. Shortly we'll catch up with Ben Varland, the president of the Warrigal RSL, a younger veteran that has seen plenty in his time with the Royal Australian Navy. This is an Ed for Breakfast special Anzac Day broadcast in their shoes. Ben Varland is the president of the Warrigal RSL. He was first posted to HMAS Success back in 1999 and his first trip would be deployed to Southeast Asia and then to East Timor in September 1999. So after my technical training, um, I was posted up to Sydney and I ended up um, going on to HMAS Success, which is our replenishment ship. And um, we were doing a trip up to Southeast Asia, Singapore, and we're playing war games and all that sort of stuff with some of the Asian nations up there. And uh, East Timor kicked off. So we got uh, redeployed um, back to Darwin where we, we took on supplies and then we went back over to East Timor where it spent about, oh, I think it was um, about six, eight weeks um, of time there right when it kicked off. Peacekeeping mission. Mm. Can you break that down for What is a peacekeeping mission and then obviously going to war? Because there's various other things and that's, that's sort of, I think, word that comes out of the military is just like, oh, look, we're not at war, it's just a peacekeeping mission. We're just... But for those that are on the ground, it's more than that, isn't it? 
Yeah, it certainly is. And I, I mean, I probably won't be able to give you a, a clear definition of yeah. what's what, but certainly um, in the in the period when we were there, it was a war zone. It was, um, you know, our ship had to get moved a number of times because we were in um, close contact with RPGs and those sorts of things where we would have been hit by the militia had they yeah. have decided to, um, to launch an attack on us. Um, there were shots being fired. All that sort of stuff was happening. Um, I managed to go to a shore a number of times, which was... Um, an eye-opener, an absolute eye-opener, and some of the trauma um, that I experienced from that, just from a touch point of, you know, under probably a week in time, um, was just huge. So, I mean, I just think about some of those individuals that deployed, and particularly the army blokes that that spent six and nine months, you know, in the bush um, fighting the militia. Yeah, they talk about it being a peacekeeping mission, but it was was pretty full-on. It was Mm. a lot of of contacts and, and all that sort of stuff that was going on. So you mentioned at the start of our chat here that you've lost some friends, um, some dear friends, and you've also mentioned friends for life, that, that, that real lineage there where, where once you sign up, you've got those friends for life, but then you're starting to see friends fall by the wayside uh, due to post-traumatic, post-traumatic uh, trauma and, and various other aspects that might come into their life. When you, when you delisted, when you, when you came out, was the support there for you and we're talking what early 2000s here was it there for you um and how did you find that transition out of such a regimental process yeah it's a good question ed and i think um to to simply answer it no there was no support um there was no uh transition out of the service so you know you, you you're a well-oiled machine by the time you go through recruit training and then you're uh, the rest of the training and then you're away serving your country um you know, and you're pretty proud of that. You're pretty proud of that fact that you're there and you've got purpose. Mm. Um, you discharge yep. and that purpose is gone. You no longer bend the sailor. Um, you no longer, you don't have that title. You're no longer a part of that anymore. So I think it, it, it is a really tough and bitter pill to swallow. Um, and for me, the RSL always seemed to be um, not accessible in a lot of ways. And, and I remember my first Anzac Day um, in my local area at that time I was living around the Berwick area and wearing my medals from East Timor and you know questions are why are you wearing your dad's medals you know mm. you're wearing your dad's medals on the wrong side and and this is something that is a phenomenon that happens um, I'm sure across all generations yeah. but and particularly we see it with some of our female veterans um, where the public understanding is that Oh well, they surely they didn't go and serve. They didn't earn medals. Well, they absolutely did, yeah. and have done for decades and decades. Yeah. So, you know that recognition is, is something that is sometimes lost. Um, yeah. So though no. So to come back to your question, support there was absolutely nothing, and it was the RSL felt to me like a bit of an old man's club, and I had no interest in joining or being involved in it. Um, and that's really what's driven me to make this a club that's accessible for for people that have just stepped out of the military, some that are still serving, and we've got a number of members that are still serving um, that are members of this RSL. And and that's a real keen focus for me, as well as families. You know, we need to be accessible and have our kids here. And we've got a number of kids that are um, also involved here um, and have their own little club. That's Ben Varlin, Warrigal RSL president. Well, we're going to catch up with his vice president shortly, Kylie Sage, who is also head of welfare at the Warrigal RSL, and also reached the rank of leading seaman in the Royal Australian Navy. This is Anzac Day on Triple M, In Their Shoes, with Ed Cowleshaw. 
Kylie Sage is a Warrigal local, attended primary school and senior school in the region, and then decided uh, to sign up as a marine technician in 1993 in the Royal Australian Navy. She served for eight years, but as you will hear, the transition back into civilian life wasn't easy. It was just weird. It, it took a long time to adjust. Um, I came back here for a year, and then my now husband and I, he'd already moved up to Derby, which is up past Broome, and I moved up there with him. Right. And we lived up there for five years. I worked at a detention centre up there for yeah. um, illegal immigrants. Yes. So that was interesting. That was very interesting. And it was it's, was very much, there was procedures and there were guards and there were officers and there was all this sort of stuff. So it was still that high-functioning, um, sort of vigilant kind of job that I still had. So it, it, sort of, it suited me better. I think, and it took a long time to get over the fact that people just don't do what they're supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. if you ask any any ex-military, they, you know, and you, we have a laugh, and we'll say, "How was your first job?" You know, in Civvy Street when you got out, and they're like, "Ah, oh, was really hard, actually, really hard." Um, and I remember the first time I actually chucked a sickie because you can't do that in the military yeah. at all. Um, did you feel guilty? I did the whole day. I should have just gone away. <laughs> <laughs> You're in the brig for that. Um, <laughs> but the, those are the stories that we, we hear. We hear, obviously, of the, the mental health situation when people come out of the service, but that's just simply getting a job and understanding that... People are lazy or the strict routines that you have up at four or six or whatever it is, you have to do X, Y, Z, and people don't do that. People people live their lives so ad hoc. It's a crazy, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely crazy. And I think you just have to, you have to learn to relax uh, yeah. quite a bit and have to learn to just let it slide and not let things bother you because it, it, it can. It can start to really affect you yeah. and you get cranky, <laughs> yeah. which I found. Well, you don't sleep over it. And and I think we were talking with Bob earlier as well, you know, different people, different things in life yeah. and you take that with you to bed. And this is not mental health or post... This is just office life. politics. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, and just expecting, you know, if you ask somebody to do something and you don't say please, well, then you're the worst person in the world. Yes. And you're kind of like, oh, I've got to remember to say please. I must do that. <laughs> now, you didn't meet your partner, John, in the Navy, did you? But you both served in the armed forces. Oh, no, I did meet him in the, in the Navy. Did yep. Okay, right. He joined the ship that I was serving on, which is yep. HMAS Canberra, and we became really good friends. And then he got out and it was oh, about a year later that... Yeah, that we got together. So, and lucky man, he's had me for 23 years now. Yeah. <laughs> Good on you, John. I think it works well for our relationship, but we both know where we're coming from. Like, he knows exactly where I've come from. I know where he's come from. And it just makes it easier for us, yeah. I think. I go back to World War Two or World War One, and I think of those relationships that, hey, do you want to get married? After knowing each other for two hours, I know you think. But those that stayed home, those those wives that never knew what happened no. to their husband over there. It's no, crazy. and they had no idea. And unfortunately, the men didn't talk about it either. No, they didn't because it wasn't the wasn't the done thing, and no. you didn't talk about it. Also, they didn't want to talk about it because they didn't want like their wives and their children to know the atrocities that the they had burden. witnessed, that they had gone through. 
Um, so, and also they just kind of want to push it in the back of their mind and, and make it go away. As we know now, that doesn't happen. No. And it will fester and it will simmer. And they used to call it shell shock back in the day. Um, now, as we know, it is it, a lot of it's um, PTSD. And they just didn't know how to share. And even men in the, in the same um, platoon regiment. And he said, we'd see each other all the time at family events for the next 50 years, but we never spoke of it. They actually never even talked to each other about it. So, unfortunately, that's that's the way it was. And it just doesn't work that way. Mm. You know, we do a lot. The RSL here, it's really important for us about veteran welfare. Um, so we have, once a month, we have a wellbeing meeting. And at the start of it, we all sort of, you know, say who we are, where we serve. You can say as much as you want or as little as you want. Um, and you've got a group of people that will sit around a room and talk about some of the atrocities and some of the things that they've witnessed or done or been through and everything like that. And and they, you know, once you start talking about it, it it takes that sharpness away and you've suddenly got guys that will go, oh, okay, so it wasn't just me that that happened to and how did you deal with that? And just being able to say it out loud is, mm. is a big thing. And to be able to say it with people that are going to sort of made, are going to get where you're coming from, are going to understand and also understand how you, you can't talk about it with your family because you don't want to. Yeah. Because once they know it, they can't unknow it. Vice President of Warrigal RSL Kylie Sage there, Head of Welfare. Well, Head of Communications and also a Vice President of the Warrigal RSL is Vietnam veteran Bob Green. This is an Ed for Breakfast special Anzac Day broadcast in their shoes. Bob Green is Vice President and Head of Communications at the Warrigal RSL. His military service included Australian Regular Army from 1970 to 1972 as a private and served in South Vietnam with the 3rd and 4th Infantry Battalions of the Royal Australian Regiment. Our conversation starts with Bob on the topic of his relationship with his father and whether there was support for Bob to join the service. Saw a fair bit of action, your old man. Did he talk about his experience? Because I know with my old man and his relationship with his father wasn't great because of what he had seen in the war and things like that. And Dad would probe and try and get some answers out of him, but he wouldn't talk. What about your relationship with your dad? Um, he never really told you the, the nitty-gritty. Yeah. He, he, if, he, if he was at a belly full of grog, yeah. he'd talk about hating Hitler and some of the things that caused the horrors of the war, um, but never ever said... You know, never ever gave me any finer detail of of what happened at Tobruk, that siege, what happened in New Guinea. I know he wasn't on the trail at, at Kokoda, uh, rather uh, um, coming over from the Middle East. They gave him some jungle training, sent him over there, but I understood he's only there three to six months and he got malaria and was sent home. So. Yeah, right. But, yeah, no, never never told me the nitty-gritty about any of his experiences. Did he support you? I think he was uh, proud that he's youngest son had you know, joined the army and survived and come home. And I'm sure he thought it would have made a better person of me. And I think in many ways it was, it was certainly helpful. You mentioned the calling and the, the adventure and that sort of side of it as well. Were you prepared? Well, I was young and uh, uh, not fearless, far from it. But um, the, the adventure, the change in life, this new 
purpose. I think perp- getting purpose was, the more I think about it, yeah, that was probably good for me. Um, the discipline was, was good. Um, you know, I learned a whole lot of new skills um, and it prepared me well for, you know, what was going to come. The friendship and mateship that you made, uh, are you still in contact with anyone nowadays and, and how tight is that bond? It's a very powerful bond. In fact, in recent days, I've had a phone call from a, you know, a mate of 50 years that we only speak every few years. He's interstate. But, yeah, it, it is a wonderful bond and uh, something very special. You know, I suppose people playing footy grand finals remember their, their mates that were there and that's special. But the military experience uh, from day one in recruit training to coming home on the HMA Sydney you know, a couple of years later with with blokes uh, that I became fairly, you know, close with. Yeah, no, a wonderful bond and uh, it's one of the nice things about having served. So much hatred, so much disgrace and despicability about this whole process, about why we're over there, but you guys copped it. Yeah. How, how did you cope mentally with that? Because you're there giving a blank check of your life on the line for this country and, and all of a sudden they're not responsive. I think you're absolutely right, Ed. That was that was a, a tough part. Um, coming home, we come home on the HMO Sydney with the last, you know, infantry troops out of Vietnam. I come home with uh, um, Delta Company of the 4th Battalion. Um, we quietly jumped off the HMO Sydney at uh, Garden Island no fanfare, no ticker tape parade, and um, fortunately I had my elder brother, national serviceman, and my mother and sister and my fiancé there to greet me, but we were basically whisked away and, you know, do nothing. And from there it probably got worse. Um, following my discharge in late 72, I became a member of the Tarolgan RSL, yeah. where my dad was one of the founding members. We weren't accepted, or I wasn't accepted, and, and most of my mates... Comments were often made that, you know, it wasn't a real war. In fact, um, it became so unpleasant that um, I voiced my opinion to a particular person who wasn't a veteran but, a, but an employee of the RSL and that resulted in me being called before the executive and uh, told I had to apologise for being uh, not belligerent but boisterous. And, uh, and But that was my experience and... Uh, that was difficult and unfortunate. What was good, the 80s, in 1987, as most will know, there was a welcome home parade where the, the government finally sort of said welcome. And for myself and, and my good mates that I marched with, that was a pleasant, rewarding, well-deserved, albeit over time. I still felt very good and proud to be walking in, be part of that march mm. and feeling like I wasn't the bad guy. And this is the ticker tape parade that Nobody got when they came home. Vietnam veteran Bob Green, who was also Vice President of the Warrigal RSL, Head of Communications. We head out to Phillip Island and catch up with three Vietnam veterans, one current president and two former presidents of the Phillip Island RSL. This is an Ed for Breakfast special Anzac Day broadcast in their shoes. Barry Goldsbury is a former president of the RSL at Phillip Island. He was drafted into national service, went in as a recruit, came out as a private and served with the 7th Battalion in Vietnam. Here we focus on the story of mateship and the emotion involved with Barry Goldsbury. 
he said to me, the problem with you fellas, he said, you haven't been deprogrammed. Yeah. And he produced a DVD, uh, sorry, it's a video. And it's called, You're Not In The Forces Now. And um, he, he basically was saying that that was the major problem with a lot of guys was that um, for argument's sake, take our situation, um, we, we sustained casualties. Yep. Unfortunately, we lost a couple of guys. Um, there was no counselling for those blokes who were involved. Um, replacements would be come in. Yep. Um, they were, to a certain extent, not accepted by the other blokes. Pretty green and... Um, well, yeah, but... You just lost your mate, that sort of stuff. You know, yeah. um, and that sort of thing. Um, and it, it was difficult, but nothing was, was ever done. Back to work, boys. Um, get back from an op, get in the boozer, get drunk, go to bed, get back on the horse, so to speak. But the interesting part about it is that I hadn't seen fellas that I served with, and this is getting back to what Chris said. They pull you out of the bush, they tell you to have a shower, get dressed, go to the pay, pay office, you're on a flight to Saigon, and then um, you're going home, son, because your time's up. And... Um, guys that we'd served with for nearly two years, gone. And, you know, we were a family mm. of about 30 blokes. And we relied on one another. And um, you're only as good as the weakest link, as they say. And that's very, very true of a, a rifle section and a rifle platoon. But going back in about 2005, we had a reunion of our platoon only, about 30 guys, they were all alive then. And it was at this RSL. And they'd stayed in Melbourne. And, of course, I lived on the island. I stayed here. And uh, they all came down, did the museum, and came here for lunch. And the RSL really looked after them. Now, I was president at the time. No, I wasn't. I just finished my term as president. My wife was with me, and the other guys had their wives. And it was really great to see them. And we'd had a terrific time, terrific lunch renewed acquaintances, told stories. Anyway, they all had to go back to Melbourne and I stayed on the island. They went out to the bus. I saw them off, and I'm getting emotional now, sorry. No, that's all right. And um, my wife said to me, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not. And she said, what's wrong? I said, I feel like part of me is leaving. And... Um, Coincidentally, I got a letter last night that there's another reunion coming up next year in Canberra. Uh, I hope I'm alive to, to go, because I want to go and see these guys, because we've lost probably half a dozen of that original 30-odd. But, yeah, it's, um, it still hurts, and um, I guess I've never, ever been as close to anyone since as the time when I was in the army with those fellas. An emotional Barry Goldsbury there, talking about mateship and his role in the Vietnam War. This is Anzac Day on Triple M, In Their Shoes, with Ed Cowleshaw. Corporal Greg Mead served in the Royal Australian Air Force and is a Vietnam veteran. He was also a parachute jump instructor and firmly believes that we didn't lose the war in Vietnam. 
There's also been <clears throat> a misrepresentation of what Vietnam was all about. Yep. And it's been a lie that's been developed, and I don't know why the truth has never come out that the fact is we didn't lose in Vietnam. We won. We, we did our job. And uh, let me start from the beginning, because uh, I'm the son of an ex-pilot in the Air Force for 30-odd years, and uh, he, my father was sent to Butterworth in Malaysia, and the whole family went. And at that time, Malaysia was full of... Oh, Malaya it was when we went there. It wasn't until 1964 when Indonesia attacked Malaya. Indonesian... or Indonesia Confrontasi, I think they called it Indonesian Confrontation anyway, where Indonesia attacked Malaya and it became Malaysia. But from the Second World War, the English armed and trained communists to fight the Japanese. And they hardly ever fought the Japanese. But as soon as the Second World War finished, they turned around and fought the English. Now, in England, uh, sorry, in Malaya, in 1962 onwards, we had Australia, we had New Zealand, the English supporting the Malays, fighting communists in Malaya, and there was about 6,000 communist terrorists in Malaya and on the Thai border as well, just like there was in Vietnam, communist terrorists. But no one reacted to us fighting in Malaya against the Indonesians. We fought them in East Timor and in Malaya and Borneo in 1964 when Malaya became Malaysia. Now, we had all that, not one protest. But then when Vietnam happened, I know that the head of ASIS in a book uh, by Colonel Ted Sarong, who was working with the American CIA as well as the boss of uh, the Australian Army training team, his task was to try and get 10 years out of Vietnam because that would exhaust the arms and monetary supply going into North Vietnam from China and Russia. And as Barry would know, a lot of Russians were leading a lot of the Viet Cong attacks and uh, the Chinese were supporting the North Vietnamese with arms, ammunition. And, but the whole idea about Vietnam was to try and exhaust the Russian and Chinese dollars and arms from going down. And Indonesia at that stage was being armed and funded by Russia. And they're on our doorstep. Yeah. There's nearly 300, uh, 300 million Indonesians that they took on Australia. We're in great heaps of trouble. And the school I went to in Penang, which was the RAF school Penang, organised by the Air Force, we had to get out of our school several times because of bomb threats from communist terrorists. And we were just hearing stories all the time about the communist terrorists shooting up villages, shooting up bloody school buses, shooting up everything. So... I knew, and that's why I volunteered to join the services, to try and stop that happening in my country. I didn't want that. I'd seen it in Malaya, Malaysia, <laughs> stroke Malaysia, and then Vietnam, didn't want it coming down. And our job was to protect the Phuc Thuy province, part of the, that was allocated to us by the Americans. Now, we did that job and did it bloody beautifully too. And in all military personnel had to be out of Vietnam on, by the 31st of March, 1973. Every military personnel had to be out. At that stage, South Vietnam was still a sovereign state, was still its own country. It wasn't until a year, year and a half later, after the peace talks, and like I say, we'd gone home then, we'd done our job. It was still a, its own country. And it wasn't until a year and a half later that North Vietnam took up arms again and re-attacked South Vietnam. But we weren't there at that stage, we'd done our job. And we'd exhausted that monetary supply and that arms supply coming from communist China and Russia. 
So we were proud. We'd done our job, but everyone looked at us as if we'd lost a war. And we hadn't. We'd won. Mm. And that's one thing that bloody annoys me the hell out of me because not even most of the people who served there realised that. And uh, we'd done our job and done it bloody well. Retired Corporal at the Royal Australian Air Force, Greg Mead, and former President of the Phillip Island RSL. Shortly, Chris Johnson, the former naval seaman and ship's diver and current President of the Phillip Island RSL and National Vietnam Museum that is also located on Phillip Island to join us next. This is an Ed for Breakfast special Anzac Day broadcast in their shoes. Former Navy seaman and ship's diver Chris Johnson wears many hats nowadays when it comes to his responsibility of passing the baton on to the next generation, whether it be at the RSL or, of course, at the Vietnam Veterans Museum. He's still heavily involved uh, with the Royal Australian Navy, and here he talks about his passion for the RSL and what it can do for those veterans and their families. The scenario that worries me, Ed, you're talking about newer newer vets coming through now. Yeah, yeah. The scenario that worries me the most is it's a scenario that's, that is re-happening through history, and, and Australians, unfortunately, don't seem to... Don't seem to learn um, uh, from the historical facts. Um, we'll take Barry as an example. Mm. He could be or could have been on patrol, right? And his twelve months was up. Now, Gary Barry was a a, um, uh, a conscripted person, and he uh, he was split. He was split between uh, between times. So he was in one battalion. That battalion went home. So they did twelve months. He was in put into seventh battalion. Right, Barry. Uh, not quite, Chris. I was with seven all the way through. Well, right, okay, right. But then, when his time was up, he could be heeloed out while he was on patrol. He could be heeloed out, taken back to his camp, his main camp, right, and then be put on a Qantas plane, right, and be back at the cross in New South Wales. Yeah. In the time, in the same time frame, in the same day. Exactly. You know, there, there was no, there was no way to, um, to for them to be debriefed. Or anything like that. They were told. Uh, they were told to take their uniforms off. If they were in Victoria, they were, they were told to come back at Watsonia after they had a fortnight's leave, yeah. and they were discharged. Right? We are doing exactly the same thing. We've done exactly the same thing. We haven't learned from history. I've got friends, right, that I've served with, right, in the navy. Their sons are in the SAS. Mm. Right? Mm. right? They've done four tours. I had one that had four tours. Right. What had a had was uh, was second in line to a, with, with an explosive, right? The bloke in front of him was killed. He was scalped. He woke up in Germany in hospital, right? Didn't make it home again, right? Went and did his fifth tour. Right. Now, how are they going to be when they're our age, or yeah. a little bit younger, when they're in their forties and fifties? And it's the time. My wife just almost completed a degree in psychology, and she, she said the most uh, the most. Uh, um, the worst time is when you're in your 40s and 50s and you've got time to, to re-evaluate what you've done and, and then your post-traumatic stress comes out. And, and this has been proven with us. Yeah. How, are these, how are these younger vets going to be? We, we don't seem to... They, 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 put us in, they put us in for 12 weeks in a recruit school. Then they, debrid, they, they give you... Uh, they they dehumanise you in some respects, right? Um, and then what they should be doing... In my brief, in, in my uh, experience, is is doing the same, spending the same amount of time, right, to to make, bring you back 
into the into society, mm-hmm. right? Spend that twelve weeks, take you to a camp, right? And and slowly defuse what it, it, it's just it's just good common sense, yeah. I feel. And I think with the people from Afghanistan, because it has been our longest war, Vietnam was, but this has. They've got to start thinking very seriously about doing this. We, 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 we've, um, we're looked after by the government, yes. But the, if the government spends the money in the right way and looks after and looks after these people straight away before they discharge them, right, um, they're going to save themselves and they're going to save their wives and their families a great deal of hardship. Uh, and that's, that's my fear that they don't do that. I have a, a huge interest in any veteran at all that served for this country. I, um, I, I, I just, I just see it that we we're brothers. We always will be brothers, and nothing will divide us. Mm. Um, I, I, and it's the same with the with the women now. I, I um, I've got a, a group marching. Pochmo Sydney is marching, and the Rands weren't allotted a place. The Women's Royal Australian Navy, and they're marching behind us. And we made sure they bloody well were. Yeah. I think that it's just um, anyone that makes that commitment to their country. Um, deserves to be looked after, and that's that's why I get so much enjoyment um, out of doing the, the presidencies I do and things like that. Because, and I, and I hopefully I'll I'll do it as long as I can. Yeah. But I but I would love a couple of young people to come along and, and tell us to uh, to POQ and yep. uh, and take our places. <laughs> Former naval seaman and current president of the Phillip Island RSL, Chris Johnson. Thanks for spending some time with us here on Triple M on Anzac Day. Full-length podcasts of these conversations will be available via the listener app over the next week. Thanks again for spending time with us this morning on your Anzac Day, lest we forget.